Hey, welcome to Win the Shift, a podcast for when life and faith go off script. My name is Michael Frost. Hello there, thanks for listening in once again, if it's once again, if it's your first time, also thank you. Hi, um, we are, the well it's the third day of New Zealand spring, I'm here in the usual spot once again. Feels like every time I'm doing this, it's pouring with rain outside. Maybe that's because it's been winter, but anyway, it's pouring with rain again. I can actually hear our gutters overflowing right now. Uh, and so if you hear a faint um, trickling sound in the background, just don't be alarmed, all right? It's just the gutters overflowing in our house. Nothing more uh, problematic than that. Uh, anyway, today's a slightly longer episode than normal, and I'm going to jump right into it. We're in the middle of a series that I've been calling In the Flesh, and it's all about spirituality faith and the intersection with our sense of embodiedness. And today's episode is the first dealing a bit more specifically with uh, the conversation around sexuality. And we'll be spending at least a couple of episodes discussing this and in particular looking at the conversation relating to LGBTQI inclusion in Christianity. And I think that's a really important conversation for all sorts of reasons. And there's nothing that really gets to the heart, even in a general sense, there's nothing that gets to the heart of our embodiment like our sexuality, our sexual identity. And I don't just mean who we're sleeping with, but I, but I mean a much deeper sense of sexuality being about connectedness, a sense of connectedness that integrates body and mind and the most intimate sense of who we are and our identity and our sense of self. So all of that's wrapped up in our sexuality and historically, for, for lots of reasons that I've been touching on throughout the series, the Christian tradition has been pretty terrible at talking about sex and sexuality in healthy and meaningful ways. And I think this is even the more so in recent times in relation to LGBTQI inclusion. Not just terrible at talking about it in healthy ways, but have been, in fact, quite harmful in the ways in which the church tradition has approached conversations around sexual orientation and gender and so on. And so this conversation matters for all of us. And it matters for all of us because we're all in the business of wanting to be healthy people. And a part of being healthy and integrating our spirituality with our sense of embodiedness is to um, be able to, in a, in a really healthy way, understand our own sexuality and what that means for us. And then in particular, the conversation around LGBT inclusion is, is of real importance, I think, at the moment, more so than ever, perhaps, as, as the realities of diverse human experience are coming increasingly into contact with a very fixed set of views within certain streams of Christianity. And you can see you don't have to... Uh, wander around for too long before you see the ways in which that is manifesting itself in the public square uh, and in people's personal lives. And so this episode is an interview with my friend Ben, who's a Christian and who's gay. And one of the reasons for starting with this kind of conversation rather than some big theological um, layout is because I think there's been a real tendency in the church to talk about this as an issue, you know, and as an issue about those people over there somewhere they are some kind of other. And you'll see this come through in the conversation today, actually, that this is a deeply dehumanizing way to talk about people in the LGBT community. And it also means that people, whether they be conservative Christian people or, or in wider society, people have often arrived at conclusions of belief that actually don't take into account the very real lived experience of, of people who are not just an issue and are not those people over there at all. Now, in the next episode, I am going to then go on to talk a bit more about my own theological journey with this and how and why I reached the conclusions that I do now, which do differ significantly from the conservative Christian views I was raised with. 
But in this episode, I wanted to start off with this kind of conversation um, by talking with my friend Ben. And when I was in Melbourne a couple of weeks ago, I had the opportunity to sit down with him, have a good chat about his experience of growing up in kind of a Baptist Christian home and then what to do with the emerging realisation of his sexuality and how that unfolded for him. Uh, it's a really personal and honest account of his story and of his life. And so I'm so appreciative to, to Ben for being willing to talk about it in this kind of way, especially in such a public forum. Um, we were talking in a, in a sort of a large room, so it's a little echoey, a little more echoey than normal. Um, but, you know, that all adds to the ambiance. So this is episode 23, Even the Shift. Let's get into it. So I'm sitting here with Ben, uh, who's chatting to me today, lurking in the background, Josh, helping us record. Um, ben, we might start with just a question about, if we go back a few years, to when you were a little person, mm-hmm. uh, can you talk a little bit about the, the kind of religious environment you grew up in, what kind of faith, spirituality did you have as a, as a young kid living in Australia? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I come from a Baptist aristocracy. Everyone <laughs> in my family is a pastor or a minister of um, missionary, doctor, nurse, teacher. So I, I guess the, the Christian tradition that I grew up in was mostly very conservative, um, very Caucasian, um, very middle class and... Um, I, I think that I had a very real faith as a child. I had, um, I don't know, I, I think I was four weeks old for the first time I went to church and I probably went every Sunday until I was sort of 15 or 16 or something like that. And I, I think that I had a very real personal relationship with with Jesus and um, I he was very important to me, but he was presented to me as someone who was my friend who loved me, who would sit on the end of my bed when my mum wouldn't anymore, who who cared about me. And I guess in not too dissimilar to an imaginary friend that would come around with me wherever I went. But um, I think I had a very deep kind of affection for Jesus um, as a kid. So I, I had a, a very Bible-believing kind of family and tradition, but then this very personal kind of... Uh, friendship with Jesus, I guess, that we're running together at the same time. Because some people growing up in a Christian environment talk about their experience, I think, sometimes as if their parents had a faith and they just kind of inherited it and it wasn't really a faith of their own. But for you, it was something that was... Yeah, well, I mean, personal. like when I was little, my I, I used to be afraid of the dark and my mum would read me a story when I was going to sleep and then we would negotiate how long she would sit on the end of my bed for... And uh, at the end of my negotiation, she would leave. And, um, but then she would say that Jesus would sit with me. And I remember um, feeling sorry for Jesus having to sit up for so long. So I would <laughs> um, squash myself into the wall so that Jesus could lie on the mattress as well. And I'd end up giving him my pillow and most of my doona because I thought that Jesus might be cold. Um, so I, uh, I, I definitely inherited a tradition from my from my parents, but I guess the 
kind of faith that my parents had modelled to me uh, was one where Jesus was much more interactive, I suppose. That is so incredibly sweet to imagine you laying out your pillow and your doona, which is, I think, Australian for... A doona, a blanket. For, for duvet. Yeah. I think that's what the Kiwis would call it. Um, okay, so you're in this relatively conservative Christian house with a very meaningful personal faith, spirituality, uh, friendship with Jesus. Mm. At what point in this process for you did you start to become aware of of an internal conversation around sexuality or that this was something that was coming up for you? Well, I mean, I also went to a Christian school and so I guess in lots of ways I was quite sheltered from any kind of discussions around sex in lots of ways. Um, it, It wasn't necessarily something that came up in conversation in in public spaces. Um, Even in the schoolyard, I guess we didn't really, well, most of my friends were girls and they probably didn't really talk about sex as much as boys did. But um, I guess sort of middle primary school, I became aware of sex as something that was potentially going to be more accessible in the future. What Um, age is middle primary school? uh, Like 10? Yeah. Maybe, but I never really, I mean, it, it was never something that I really had to think about, I guess, mm. until sort of I got to maybe 11 or 12 when my friends that were guys sort of developed crushes on girls and um, I guess intellectually I kind of understood why they would want to do that, but I had no sort of desire to be any more than friends with girls and I guess I developed more feelings for the boys my age and while that wasn't necessarily confronting at the time because I didn't necessarily think about it too much, I, I remember almost where I was standing when I I found out what gay people did and somehow that resonated with me and I I remember it was like a tidal wave of fear and shame crushed me and like I was dumped by a wave and and then I was a little boy with a big secret that mm. I couldn't tell anyone. Um, and then I guess that was before we started having sex ed at school and I felt very isolated in those discussions about sex because I didn't feel like they were relevant to me and they kind of reinforced this idea that I was different, that I had a reason to be ashamed, that... And and it reinforced to me that I I had a secret that I couldn't tell anyone. So what was shaping that sense, looking back on it now? Hmm. Feeling of shame that you immediately experience, is that because there's a particular conversation around, like because your Christian tradition had told you certain things about sexuality or was it something that came out of the blue for you? Uh, I guess um, homosexuality was... Never framed in a positive light. Sure. Um, I think that gay people or homosexuals were always described as them, and there was always an us and them sort of conversation if they came up at all. I think the whole Sodom and Gomorrah sort of stories that we read in primary school. <laughs> sure. Great Probably. kids' tales, aren't they? Probably Wonderful. probably didn't help. And, you know, as a kid you have a very black and white view of the world mm. and it's very easy to sort of get into an us and them sort of 
mentality about things and and I always knew that gay people were bad and um, whatever that was, it was bad. And I guess the that sense of shame and fear kind of came from me believing for the first time that I was them mm. and now I wasn't whatever I was before. Mm. Um, but I knew that it was bad enough that I couldn't tell anyone. Yeah, right. Um, at risk of isolating myself from my family and my friends and my community and my, um, yeah. And were you still at a Christian school at this point? Yeah. Yeah, right. So both your school environment and your home environment and your church environment, none of those are friendly spaces to no, not that at all. kind of no. conversation that's going on for you. Um, so that's at around, what, 11 or 12, mm. somewhere around there. So then how does that unfold for you over the next few years then as you are kind of negotiating now this... I can only imagine is a pretty difficult experience of both still appearing like you were one of us to everybody else but feeling inside like you were one of them and not knowing what that meant for you. Like I, what, what was, how did that experience kind of continue to unfold? Well, I guess it, it, it began as extremely disorienting and, and very lonely in lots of ways. And I probably didn't recognise that it was loneliness but I felt very much dislocated from my community and I had a sense that if they knew the real me that they wouldn't want me, that they couldn't love me and I guess those were the sort of, um, those were the kinds of things that were sort of playing over in my head and kind of reinforced this idea that I was different, that I was unclean and I, I, I guess I identified um, as, a, as a very young person as a leper that mm. was a leper on the inside, but luckily my skin wasn't diseased on the outside as long as I kept up appearances and made sure that I didn't look twice at someone that I found attractive or made sure that I um, didn't sound too camp or, or didn't act a certain way that made people think that I might be gay because then mm. I would sort of give myself away. Mm. And at this time are you saying to yourself <clears throat> internally, I actually... I think I am gay, or were you still seeing that as something to fight? I would never have said that I was gay because yeah. um, I couldn't bring myself to say mm. those words. Mm. I, I don't think that I said I was gay until I was probably 20. Right. Um, but it was caught up in this idea that I couldn't speak those things in case they became real. It was mm. something that I, I you know, it, I... It kept me awake a lot at night as a kid, but during the day something that I suppressed and didn't really, well, I didn't have anyone to talk to about it, mm. but I wouldn't have if I could because I wanted it to go away. I wanted it to disappear and I spent a lot of time, I guess, yeah, avoiding those kinds of conversations and pushing it down. And mm. Did it, you know, in, in reflecting on... The stories you were saying earlier about the kind of friendship you had with Jesus, the quite beautiful kind of, you know, I guess early, naive, wonderful spirituality you had in terms of your relationship with God. Was that, how did that play into it? What was, was there any change in, or shift in that dynamic or did you feel like you were still okay with God even if you weren't okay with the community? What, what was going on there? Uh, I think that I, God 
was once someone who was safe and kind, who um, I I really did love, but was probably more becoming cautious of, afraid of, and God probably felt like a bit more of an enigma. I didn't actually really have a problem with Jesus because mm-hmm. <laughs> um, of the way that Jesus presented himself was always sort of kind, but God I didn't really sort of understand as a concept. And I think that um, I sort of distanced myself from thinking too much about God and, and mm. yeah, it, it was easier to sort of concentrate on Jesus and then concentrate on doing all the right things, making sure that I kept up appearances, uh, said all the right things, behaved in a certain way in public so that I could at least present as if Mm. I was clean. Yeah. So does there come a point in this journey then when keeping up appearances becomes increasingly difficult for you or or what what kind of brings it to a head for you in terms of...? I think that there are a couple of things. I... Um, my mum died when I was 15 and that was another very disorienting time for me and probably the beginning of me really becoming angry at this person that I thought God was who I thought that I could trust, I thought that I could rely on. Um, But And and then I had this ongoing kind of conversation with myself of this paranoia that that I was so different and I... I still couldn't be myself and I didn't know who I was. And um, and I think that sort of was a, a swirling kind of anxiety or mm. stress that was sort of in the background all the time. I think that um, after mum died, I kind of had an excuse in a way to be angry at God because mm. I couldn't really express my anger or disappointment or confusion in a way that I, I could process well. But um, I think that sort of I, my conversations with God or my wrestling with God became probably a bit louder after that happened and I, I kind of almost gave God an ultimatum um, that he had one last chance to, to prove to me that he was the person that I thought that he was or that would be the end and I didn't really know what that meant. Um, you didn't have a particular proof in mind? Uh, I just wanted some relief, I guess. Mm. I just wanted some clarity and I just, uh, yeah, I, 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 I essentially was at a very dark part of my life and, um, you know, a lot of young gay kids end up committing suicide mm. and I think that's probably not an unreasonable trajectory. That, uh, that, was, that was probably a trajectory that I was heading into mm. And and so I guess I was I was crying out for help to someone that I didn't necessarily really trust, mm. but wanted to still believe in. And I could see that my family and my friends still trusted in God and still loved God. And on the outside, I guess He hadn't changed. But I guess I I didn't really have a lot of clarity about who God was or um, whether I could trust Him. So I think that um, I made an, I, I guess, like, I, I relied on those kinds of verses that if you seek me with all your heart, then you'll find me when you seek me with all your heart. And I I think I really, uh, my church was doing an alpha course at the time and that ended up being very helpful for me. And I had a, I had a very real supernatural experience with God that I, that 
was very transformative for me. Right. Um, but it was, it was a hope that God was real. It was a belief that God was real. And I, I guess I was still confused and I still had reservations and I was still very afraid, uh, not out to anyone. So right. the experiences that I had with God were validating for me and reassuring to me, but I guess they were still... I, I was still very confused. Mm. I'd fallen in love with my best friend at school mm. and that was very difficult. And I guess I started to fall in love with Jesus, which is, yeah, probably the only way that I can describe that experience. Mm. But I, I felt like um, it was this terrible Shakespearean sort of experience of being a Capulet, falling in love with a Montague. I, I had a best friend that I was... I had feelings for that I wasn't supposed to and I had feelings for God that I wanted to do the right thing and I wanted to please him and I wanted to follow him, but I felt like I was in a very difficult sort of position. Because those two things kind of don't go together, right? So well, they couldn't. Yeah, they, right. There was no way that, that I could entertain these, these feelings that I had or these urges that I had, I guess, without going to hell or... Right. Um, Which is a pretty potent fear. I mean, that's... Yeah, well, that's... like like the, the worst thing imaginable, right? Yeah, that, it's the worst thing imaginable. The worst thing that I... The worst thing that could happen to me is that in, in my head at the time is that I would fall in love with a guy and end up moving into an apartment with a dog in South Yarra and live happily ever after and then go to hell. Right. <laughs> that was kind of... That was kind of what I was trying to avoid. Sure, <laughs> Yeah. Uh, understandably so. So that's in your kind of, what, mid to late teens that this kind of stuff's happening for you. Yeah. Um, at what point does, I guess, does your coming out kind of experience take place for you? When when does that happen? <clears throat> um, I... Coming out is a really difficult thing to do, especially in that context, because you have to get to a point where the pain of being silent and the pain of being alone is as bad as the potential rejection of your family and your friends right. and your community. Yeah. And that's kind of how high stakes it feels. Mm. And it's how high stakes it is for some people because people get kicked out of home and they they lose their family, they lose their friends, they, leave the, they lose their community and um, that's not an uncommon experience for anyone. And I knew <clears throat> that my family had traditional views of marriage, they had traditional views of relationships and this was not something that would fly with any of them but I just didn't know how they would react mm. and I was really very nervous. Um, I, I came out to one of my pastors at an altar call and I just very, I couldn't even bring myself to say the word so I wrote it down on a paper, I think I'm gay and he immediately said, oh, no, you're not, you're a new creation and then prayed for me, and then I went and sat down, and that was um, probably uh, that was the first time I got close yeah. to sort of coming out. And I then... actually remember um, <laughs> when I was uh, in a different church experience a number of years ago, there being this young guy in the in the worship and creative arts team at the church that I was mm. in who had come out as gay and left the church, and I remember the worship pastor saying to me oh, I just wish he'd come and talk to me first because if he had come and talked to me and told me he was gay, I would have just told him that he wasn't. 
Yes. It's, and um, he was <laughs> like he thought that would have genuinely like solved the problem. Yes. Well, there's a lot of really well-meaning people, <laughs> um, <laughs> which is why it's hard to be angry at them for too long. <laughs> um, <laughs> so the second time that I came out was uh, to a different pastor, believe it or not, um, and he was probably a little bit more helpful. He didn't dismiss um, what I'd just said. He definitely wasn't very positive about it. He suggested maybe that I should step down from the leadership position that I was in at the time, which I was happy enough about um, uh, because I believed myself to be in a complete crisis Mm. and couldn't possibly contribute anything to anyone else in that kind of state. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, that was probably when I was 18. um, Right. Maybe 17, and was then given the name of a person who was leading a reparative therapy program and was suggested that maybe I should get in contact with them, which I did happily enough. So reparative therapy is essentially like conversion therapy of some, like... Yeah. It's, again, different from the US sort of conversion camps. Yeah. Um, but it was the same organisation. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was something that I really wanted to explore because I really didn't want to be gay I wanted to be the same as everyone else. Mm. Um, And I think that my entry into reparative therapy was definitely me wanting to sort this out before I got too old to sort it out. Right. So I... My coming out experience was um, not long after that in my family, but I made sure that I had a car, had a bag packed and I wrote a note... Right. Um, which I left on my on my dad's bed for him to find, and then I didn't come home for three days with hundreds of missed calls, which must have been awful for him. Mm. Um, so but the I, note was essentially your your coming out. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and then when I eventually did come home, I have never been more. I've never dreaded anything more in my whole life. Mm. I've never. I, I don't remember a time feeling so uncomfortable so afraid and like I was at the edge of a cliff and didn't know if I was going to fall off or not. My dad was very gracious and it was a smoother experience than I imagined, but it was still not a really very committed coming out. I said something in the note like I've had thoughts and feelings related to homosexuality or something, but I made it very clear that I'd already put processes in place for this not to be an issue in the future. Right. Um, there, there was no way that I would ever sort of act on this in a public kind of way and this wasn't what I wanted for the rest of my life and I loved Jesus very much and he had nothing to worry about essentially. Right, okay. So at this point you're still kind of, um, and now I can understand why that in some respects if he's a conservative Baptist is going to be easier to deal with because even though that's difficult to hear probably from his perspective, it's at least you're trying to do something about it. Yeah. You know, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Yes. Well, um, that was the way that I tr- wanted to sell it Yeah. to them so <laughs> that, um, yeah, at least there was hope Yeah. that, sure. you know, I'd fix it. Yeah. And what, and what does happen from there then? So, so that's, that's kind of a, a big step in things becoming more external in terms of starting to talk about this. So do you go into a kind of a, a, a rep... What did you call it? Um, Reparative therapy. Reparative therapy. therapy. 
Um, uh, yes, I did. So yeah. uh, I, I had very split lives. I had a, a swirling internal world that was very painful, very scary um, and full of fear and shame. And then I had a, a projected version of myself, which was the school captain of my private Christian school, the, a worship leader who had their life sorted, who was going to, um, you know, probably end up in Christian ministry at some stage. Mm. So, yeah, I, the the process of me going into reparative therapy was really just making sure that I could clean up the inside so that this projected outside could become more real, yeah. I guess, right. or more legitimate. Mm-hmm. And and what I found in that um, in that group environment of of lots of people my age was probably not as damaging as other people have experienced in those kinds of groups, mostly because nothing could have made me feel worse about myself. Mm. I, I already felt worthless and alone and unwanted or unlovable. Um, I think people have those experiences. People experience those feelings when they go into groups like that occasionally, but I already felt like that. So I don't think that that kind of exacerbated what I thought. What it did help to do was actually gave me a community of people that I actually um, could be transparent with and Mm -hmm. open with and honest with, and it made me feel a lot less alone. So I'm not an advocate for these kinds of groups at all, (laughs) Um, but... That that was my experience. It was the first time when I, I felt like I could be myself and right. felt like I wasn't the only person in the whole world that was having this kind of mm. terrible, unwanted experience that I had to get rid of. Mm-hmm. Um, so it gives you that sense of not feeling alone, but my uh, my guess is that it doesn't ultimately achieve what the the ultimate aim of it. Which is to no. I had. What is the aim of it? Is to, is it to sort well, of cure had, your homosexuality? Is that what the, the yeah repair repair? Sorry, yes. Um, my homosexuality, yes. which was seen to be um, a product of probably my environment right. and unsolved, mysterious pain from and trauma from mm-hmm. a long time ago. And I had several unsuccessful exorcisms. Mm. Um, it was a very kind of hyper-spiritual kind of process of confession and then prayer ministry and, and then, yeah, lots of, um, lots of fasting and prayer and lots of desperate attempt, attempts to sort of change yeah. myself, which I took sole responsibility mm. for. Yes, which was a lot of pressure to be... It was a lot of pressure. Stuff, yeah. So what do you do when that, all of that... Work doesn't work. Well, so I guess um, my my way of coping was to put myself to sleep or put a part of myself to sleep and busy myself with church activities. Mm. And I guess I had to turn off the tap of my sexuality um, because I, I didn't have a way of managing it mm. uh, in a way that I thought was acceptable. But you can only turn off a big tap for so long before the water main bursts and it floods the house, which is pretty close to what happened in a metaphorical yes. kind of sense. Right. And um, uh, and then it was it felt like a catastrophe that I um, that I couldn't rein back in again. Right. Which means what then for your for this? I guess if I'm reading that right, it's a change from the 
I've been able to rein it in, and so I'm. This is kind of under control, and I'm managing it to actually. I can no longer rein this in. Well, I, I think it's just an, a very unsustainable, yeah, sort of exhausting process that that's just not sustainable long term, and that that left me extremely disappointed. Mm. Again, quite disillusioned, and I guess um, very unsure of where I stood with God, with my community, with myself. And I, yeah, I I think my disillusionment sort of led me to try and then put Jesus to sleep as best I could because this person that I loved couldn't possibly love me anymore Mm. and I had no way of managing a very real faith that I had with this the reality of my attraction that I couldn't mm. um, alter. So, yeah, I guess attempting to put Jesus to the sleep um, was probably the only way that I right. thought that I could manage it. Yeah. Which means what then for your for your experience of church and community that you had now? Does it mean leaving all of that behind at some point? Or? Well, I, I moved out of home to live with street kids, actually. Um, so I'd kind of stopped going to church in lots of ways. It was a Christian community, but um, I'd, I'd sort of slowly retreated from those those roles that I'd had at church mm-hmm. anyway. Um, and I I wanted to contribute and I wanted to, I wanted to kind of work in that environment and it didn't lend itself necessarily to going to church every mm-hmm. Sunday, which probably worked out well for me. Um, so I kind of withdrew, I guess, from those kinds of church uh, kind of responsibilities. And then I ended up leaving that church, uh, that that organisation and had got to the stage where I hadn't gone to church for so long that I I probably, I I wouldn't even know where to go Mm. if I wanted to go to church. I I certainly, I'd I'd changed jobs by that stage and when I I got to my new work, I, no one even asked if I was gay, they just asked if I had a boyfriend. And I I hadn't, that was so disarming for me. I, I, I I wasn't used to that kind of, acceptance without even it, like being a big deal. Mm. I, it was my first time probably in an environment where people just liked me and I didn't even have to pretend. Mm. So, yeah, I think I'd slowly sort of drifted away from that kind of uh, conservative kind of traditional Christian environment that I'd been in and I, I didn't see how I could ever sort of fit back into that environment. Yeah. And so at this point is... You know, the story has changed. If you think about, you know, leaving a note for your dad to find that is, I, I've been having these feelings but I'm trying to stop it. Now you're in quite a different space in that journey. Is that, is that then impacting on some of those relationships in a different kind of way? I, I think that it impacted on those relationships to the extent that I never felt that I could be honest yeah. about what was going on in my right. life. So I, I felt distant from my family but mostly because I... I didn't want to have those conversations with them mm. anymore. Mm. It felt too hard. It felt too complicated. It felt too disappointing. And although I'd established a life for myself uh, as an adult, I still kind of didn't want to lose another parent. Mm-hmm. So I, I didn't want to risk having those conversations again because I didn't know how that would end up. And mm. I think that um, the environment that I grew up in was very much about maintaining a, a perception of yourself, or at least my experience, was maintaining a, a other people's perception of myself. I, I probably wasn't still ready to have everybody think that I was a terrible person, yeah. that I was one of those people. Um, 
I think that even though I wasn't really close to a lot of people in that environment, I still wanted to be able to fit in if I could or if I was never in that kind of environment. Mm -hmm. And I think that I spent so long trying to maintain sort of an image of myself that was like holy and pure and all of those kinds of things. Um, as soon as you say that you're gay, it, it, people can, people's minds will sort of go anywhere. Right. Like I, I couldn't control what they thought that meant. Because all of your attempts at external projection of a certain kind of person essentially go out the window well, in terms of other people's experience of you because now you're gay, so obviously you can't be any of those things. Yeah, and right. I must be half naked on a podium somewhere yeah. or right. like dressing nothing, walking down the streets in Sydney in Mardi Gras, or, mm. which wasn't the case, but, you know, yeah. Uh, they're just, uh, at the time, there just wasn't that many people that were gay that, that, that my friends and family knew. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I just had no idea what they thought mm. that meant. So um, you've kind of, you've, you've wound your way, or you've, you've found your way as an adult here, kind of doing your own thing essentially, and you've put Jesus to sleep. You gave him a pillow and a doona, so that's nice. Uh, <laughs> I didn't. Uh, oh, not this time? <laughs> I didn't offer him a pillow or oh, okay. a doona this okay. time. Yeah, fair enough. At, at some point then, you've still got this kind of history of faith and spirituality sitting in the background for you that, probably, that, that I'm imagining on some level still means something to you in there. Um, how do you find yourself winding back to, winding your sort of path back into engagement with um, Christian community or Christian faith or do you or what was that experience like for you? I mean, I, I wouldn't let myself think about it very often because I, I really feel like I'd cut off a limb mm. almost. There was part of myself that I'd given away in that process that I couldn't get back and... I think that I was probably like in mourning really that this extremely important part of my life had sort of come to nothing mm. um, and I had just no way of, uh, no, no way of sort of asking questions in a, in a, in a way that was authentic that didn't sort of, um, I mean, I guess... I'd always been paranoid that I would make that I would that I would sort of create a god to serve my purposes or that was always like something that often people would say in in my Christian tradition that you know sometimes there's really difficult things in the bible and you just have to suck it up and that's just the way things are and that's what we you know we all have to make sacrifices and we all have to lay our life down and mm. um you know I I was really because it it seemed so clear to me in the Bible that homosexuality was wrong, there was no way that I could sort of mm. return. And and I I'd spent so long with a split kind of life, this internal life and this projected kind of mm. life that I didn't want to be fake anymore. Mm. And I didn't I wanted to be honest and I wanted to be authentic and the relationships that I had were based on trust and vulnerability and all of those kinds of things and I just didn't see how I could go back into an environment where I had to fake it again. Yeah. Um, and that whole idea was just so exhausting to me that I didn't, yeah, that was very unappealing. But then, you know, you can only put Jesus to sleep for so long before he wakes up and I'm an emergency nurse and the, uh, when people are waking up from their anaesthetic, you can purge the medication and sort of put them back to sleep but you can't paralyse 
God the same way that you can paralyze patients mm-hmm. if they're moving too much. And <laughs> I, I really felt like there, were, there came a time when God started to wake up again and I, I didn't really know what to do with him. Mm. I'd moved into a house with uh, some close friends of mine who'd started going to a church that I wasn't interested in going to. Um, but then they had these Thursday or Friday night kind of services which seemed a little bit less intimidating and I was invited regularly and often said no, but I, I think I was slowly introduced to a Thursday or Friday night, I can't remember what it was, which was much less intimidating and I, I guess I was introduced to a community of people that had more questions than answers but weren't afraid to ask questions and and, and I think that that probably was the beginning of me, the beginning of, I guess, God slowly disarming me mm. um, and helping me to sort of genuinely question some of the things that I'd believed before and then maybe reconsidering some of the things that I'd believed were maybe incorrect um, or coming to, well, like allowing myself to believe that maybe I didn't have to believe some of the things that were so deeply kind of ingrained Mm. in me, giving myself permission to reconsider some of the things that I just had taken for granted, I guess. Right, so the Christian tradition or scriptures or whatever clearly say this, therefore I can't reconcile these two parts of my life and in this process you're actually able to start unpacking some of those assumptions and say maybe, maybe in fact I don't have to reject this part of myself to... Is, is that what's going on? Or? Well, I guess, to be honest... Um, it wasn't necessarily the verses in the Bible that bothered me. Yeah. It was probably God right. that bothered yeah. me. Yeah. And I'd never really seen God to be someone that was kind. And I guess through this experience, God reintroduced himself as someone that is kind. And he probably, I, I really didn't trust him. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, he really had like quite a lot of work to do. And I didn't negotiate with God this time and my wrestling with God was much more sort of passive actually. I think God sort of, it felt like God was reaching out to me, slowly kind of reintroducing himself as someone that was reliable and trustworthy mm. and, and kind. The pastor of the church that I was becoming a part of invited me for breakfast probably the next day after I met him um, and it was very obvious what he was doing. <laughs> Um, I'd been in Christian environments before where people were sort of like on the door waiting for new people to come and then snap them up as soon as they come in. <laughs> um, and, and the Really, ask, is it that transparent, surely? Not. It was really very, <laughs> this was very transparent. Um, and he asked me directly, um, why don't you go to church anymore? Do you not believe in God? And I was like completely, <laughs> I wasn't ready for him to be so forward. And I said, well, I can't because I'm gay. Mm-hmm. And he said to me, I don't think God cares who you're sleeping with at the moment. Um, I don't think that's his biggest kind of priority. And I was horrified because I wasn't sleeping with anyone. Um, <laughs> and again, like I was now sort of having to figure out a way of like introducing myself as not one of those gay people that is still like like half naked at Mardi Gras. But that was, you know, I had always had this idea that for me to be acceptable to God or for me to, um, you know, I, I still had this expectation that God wanted me to be perfect. Um, and 
as as God slowly reintroduced himself to me, um, I think I just took a lot of the pressure off myself to, yeah, I, I, I think I, I had so, much, so many hang-ups about monitoring my behaviour and mm. monitoring my emotions and monitoring my thoughts and beating myself up if I got it wrong. So in this kind of process then of, of in your words, I think God reintroducing himself to you and you kind of opening up to, to, to a kinder, more embracing or accepting God, do you still have going on for yourself, what, if I'm going to re-engage in this, what does this mean for me? Or are you actually at the point now where you're like, this is who I am, and so I'm quite comfortable with God, meet, God meeting me where I'm at and that being okay? Well, I mean, I was still very much looking for a silver bullet that would like, um, I mean, I mean it's, it's not actually probably true to say that I wasn't wrestling with God, that I, I definitely was. Um, I remember I was walking along Burke Street and furious, absolutely furious with God because now that he'd started to wake up and, like, I missed him again. Mm. <laughs> um, and, I, and, I, um, and, and when I realised that that Jesus that I still loved so much from when I was a child and um, a teenager and those, um, those times when I really feel like... Um, when I felt very close to God, when I knew that he was the same person still, I was really mad because I still didn't really feel like I had a lot of clarity as to whether I could be gay or not. Right. Um, and I, I remember uh, having a very fierce argument with him um, telling him how unfair it was that he couldn't just tell me. Like, I, and I remember saying to him, like, it's either A or B. Like, I, I can... Um, marry a man and, like, have a monogamous relationship, which is all I wanted. I didn't want to, um, you know, I didn't... I, I just wanted a partner. Um, or I'll be celibate for the rest of my life, but you just have to tell me because, uh, you know, it wasn't helpful for me to read books about, um, like, dissecting verses mm-hmm. and all of that kind of stuff. I just... I wanted a clear kind of... Answer. Sure. So I, I said to him, it's either A or B, just tell me. I mm-hmm. need writing on a wall. Um, and in one of the times when I've heard a very still, small voice um, that was just inserted into my mind, um, I, I just heard this little sentence that the answer is X and then um, it wasn't A or B, um, the answer is X. And then I saw myself upside down in this mathematical equation with an answer that I didn't know. Um, I didn't know what X represented, but I think I became okay with not knowing necessarily um, where I was heading, but I could trust God with wherever I was at the time. And and in reality, I don't think that that was a very good question (laughs) Um, to ask God the answer's A or B, like I can be gay or I'm not, because the reality was that I was already a Christian and I was gay. <laughs> right. Um, a better question <laughs> would have been how do I love people, well, how do I live now that, right. I'm, that I, I can't let go of my faith and I don't want to let go of my faith um, and I, I, I'm unchanged from um, when I was a little child, mm. <laughs> an afraid little child. A better question would have been now how do I live? Right. A, a better question would have been how do I love people that are ungracious to me? Um, 
there were a lot of better questions to answer, which is why I don't think God gave me a direct answer at the time. So where does that leave you, I guess? Um, so when, how long ago was that? How long ago was that kind of process that you're talking about? Um, I mean, it probably feels like yesterday, but it was probably five years ago. Okay. And so where do you find yourself now on... Um, I, I think that um, I, I, I don't have a problem um, uh, I, I guess I, I had lots of questions that didn't have very good answers. Mm. I, I guess I had to look at the um, I had to I had to think carefully about why I believed what I believed and if homosexuality was wrong, why was it wrong? And it was too high stakes for me to just, to, for me to, um, I guess, just accept an answer that wasn't, that didn't really make sense to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and growing up there was always a narrative about how, you know, like God created Adam and Eve and then he, it wasn't good for man to be alone and then God provided this partner for him and it was a woman and then it's always been a woman and even I, I guess I wasn't happy with how marriage had changed over or the, the rules about marriage or the goalposts about marriage had changed over the centuries and, um, you know, if God created everyone male and female um, at the time, they're certainly not all male and female now. I'm, I'm a nurse and... There's children that are born with ambiguous genitalia. Yeah. Um, you know, there's intersex people that have male and female chromosomes. So, you know, where do they... There were, there were too many questions mm. that sort of... It didn't fit the very strict kind of um, things that I'd been told about how life was and how yeah. life was supposed to work out. And I guess, you know, I, I, I was given a script about how life should play out and I adhered as much as I could to that script but I was always off script. Yeah. Um, oh, great use of the uh, little tagline from the show. Thank you. <laughs> well, just, I, just popping that in there. <laughs> I, I was. I, 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 as much as I tried, I just, I was never on script. Yeah. You know, I, and it was, I made it my life's work to, to like, you know, follow the rules mm. um, but it just didn't work for me and I don't want to tell people what to believe and I don't want to tell people how that they should think about these things, particularly if they are gay. Um, you know, their decisions that they have to, um, you know, their things that they have to come to on their own. And, um, you know, but I, I don't have a problem with the idea that we could come to a stage of his human history where we have a, a question that doesn't have a clear answer. Um, you know, I don't think that, um, you know, in in the Old Testament and um, and in the New Testament, even when people are talking about homosexuality, I don't think that they had my idea of homosexuality in mind. Mm. You know, I don't... Um, I think that you can be in a gay relationship and it still be dysfunctional. I don't think that, um, you know, uh, no one is... Um, you know, you still have a responsibility to live. Well, I, I think I still see myself as having a responsibility to live in a way that I think is ethical and moral. Um, but, you know, there, there were no gay couples in 
in the Bible that, you know, that Paul could have looked at and thought, oh, well, you know, that's a bit different from rape and... Yeah, sure. <laughs> you know, those kinds of things are not hard for me to mm. kind of reconcile in my head. It was, it was more challenging for me to reconcile that God could actually love me mm. and I was wrong about that. Mm. Um, and I was wrong that... Um, that I that I was actually never unwanted, like it was much harder for me to believe that right. um, than it was for me to believe that you, you know that human relationships could um, could be inclusive of more than just yeah. a heteronormative sort of mum and a dad and two children. Mm-hmm. Um, is there anything else you would want to say about that whole journey, like that you think is is helpful? What I will say is that I don't think that it was necessarily overt um, homophobia that was most damaging for me growing up. Um, it was the subtle way that gay people were dehumanised mm. um, and othered, mm. I guess, that pushed me so far into a closet that that I, I couldn't have been pried out until I got to that stage where it was so painful for me to be in there that I couldn't imagine that being rejected would be worse than the current pain yeah. that I felt. Yeah. And I think that um, that the world has changed in a really short period of time and I'm sure that it's um, different for a lot of young queer people growing up now, but I'm sure that it's the same for a lot of people mm. who... Um, whose parents potentially um, talk about people out there that are those people um, without realising that they're sort of suggesting to their child um, something that they might not realise. And, you know, I think that a lot of church environments still do that. It's not... Mm. It's not comforting to say that God loves the sin, loves the sinner, but hates the sin. No. Like it's that that's very unhelpful, and it's not it's not comforting <laughs> yeah. to to think that God will tolerate me. Yeah, um, you know, and sexuality yeah. is complex, and there's so much of your identity that's caught up in um, in sexuality, and I, I don't want it to be the only part of my life. Mm. It's not the only part of my life. Mm. Um, but it's a lens that I view the world through and it's, or it's a, at least a vantage point that I see the world from in lots of ways um, and it influences my emotions and my um, relationships and um, it, it's very easy for people to hear that, um, that their, their attraction um, is bad and that makes them bad. Mm. That, it's an unhelpful way of approaching those kinds of conversations. Yes. Yeah. Even if you do have um, very fixed kind of ideas about sexuality and um, how human relationships should look. Okay, I think that that's it. I think that's good. Thanks so much. No worries. For sharing your story. Um, really appreciate it. So there you go. That was my conversation with Ben. Thanks once again to Ben for being so willing to talk openly and honestly about his journey and experience. Thanks also to Josh Furmeister for providing such a wonderful assistance in recording this while I was in Melbourne. 
and as always, thanks to Risa Machel for sound manipulation and massaging and other audio wonders. In the next episode of In the Shift, I'll be diving into my own theological journey in relation to sexuality and Christian faith. So I'll see you then. <laughs>